Today is November 23rd. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Chased Gom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Blackfoot south of the opposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and the north of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22nd, or yeah, September 22nd, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, Bearspaw Nations of the Stony Nakoda, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Metis, Inuit, status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane has taught me to pronounce my spirit name. I was born here in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in the English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution, while having an Indian Act imposed status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare People, also called the Great Bear Lake People in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Kuncho Tine Intehe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share what I know as I walk down my red road. Because apparently my issues and life and content are triggering. If you are experiencing emotional distress after anything we talk about today, and today will be a heavy topic on uh, police brutality and law colonial violence, please call the First Nation and Inuit Help for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, call 1-844-413-6649. It is a national, toll-free, 24-7 crisis line uh, meant to support anyone who requires emotional assistance relating to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit. Non-Indigenous, there are distress lines in your area, many with a functioning 211, or for 24-7, toll-free, uh, 133 456 4566. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your questions and comments. I also have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. Uh, go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. So today I'm quite lucky to have uh, someone I've met on social media talking about his story. So Stephen, thank you for being on my show. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks very much for having me uh, this morning, Michelle. Um, I'll start by saying I'm a big fan of Native Calgarian. Uh, I love all of the work and advocacy uh, you do. 
Um, and uh, yeah, very fortunate to have this chance to share my story and hopefully affect some change. Uh, so again, thanks for having me. Uh, you're absolutely correct. We did meet on uh, social media. Uh, I believe it was a month and a half ago or so uh, when I had shared uh, a press release uh, that I believe uh, had uh, come to your attention. Um, so just by way of high level overview, uh, my name is Stephen Duganzik uh, in Croatian. Uh, my last name is Dugandic. Um, I'm a lawyer, uh, born and raised in Calgary, uh, a lot of ties uh, here to the city in southern Alberta. Um, I completed law school in Edmonton at the University of Alberta between 2010 uh, and 2013, um, ultimately coming back to Calgary to practice uh, and uh, in the end becoming an employee-focused lawyer. Uh, so human rights, uh, fundamental freedom, civil liberties, these things have always been very near and dear to my heart. Um, it's ultimately what prompted me to become a lawyer, uh, in particular advocating for various marginalized groups. Um, I've been the victim of discrimination on multiple fronts uh, over the course of my life, both with respect to medical uh, conditions and disability um, and ethnically as well. Uh, it's so entrenched in our society. Um, I just felt with all of my advocacy skills, my leadership, um, there was certainly something that I could do uh, and give back to our community. Um, so upon graduating from the University of Alberta Faculty of Law in Edmonton in 2013, um, I returned home to Calgary, started working with a large national law firm. Um, that's really when things started to rub me the wrong way. Um, I did really well in law school. I was recruited by almost every major national law firm in Canada. Um, unfortunately, my last semester of law school, this would have been March of 2013, I was the victim uh, of a fairly vicious assault uh, in Edmonton. Um, and it left me with some pretty significant um, traumatic brain injuries. Um, so prior to that, growing up, I was an athlete uh, quite competitively. Um, I'd sustained many head injuries, what we now know uh, were concussions. Um, due to this snowball and cumulative effect, uh, this 2013 concussion um, really had an impact on my overall quality of life. Um, ultimately, my last batch of final exams had to be deferred and pushed back by a couple of months, uh, which then had a corresponding impact uh, to the start date. Uh, for my articles with a large national law firm and articling is sort of the lawyer licensing process. So almost immediately at the outset, having to push back my start date with this law firm, uh, it certainly ruffled a lot of feathers um, within the hierarchy uh, in this law firm. It's a very well-known, uh, pretty highly regarded law firm. And uh, even with medical confirmation in hand, you know, they weren't happy. They just asked me time and time again, didn't you just sustain a bump to the head? Haven't you recovered? Why do we have to defer your start date by two months? You look fine. So in any event, uh, right from the outset, um, you know, the, the start of my legal career was less than ideal. Um, this disclosure had to be made to the Law Society of Alberta as well. So the Law Society of Alberta, just really briefly, uh, they are tasked statutorily under the Alberta Legal Profession Act with regulating all of Alberta's lawyers and students at law. Um, so basically they have far reaching uh, jurisdiction and authority over all lawyers, articling students, province wide. 
So since we had to register myself upon graduation as a student at law, we had to provide disclosure to the law society um, with respect to the commencement of my articles having to be pushed back. Um, so the law society, uh, just by way of a high level overview, they're self-governing in the sense that under the Legal Profession Act, the enabling statute, it's really just a bunch of lawyers regulating lawyers uh, without any independent checks and balances whatsoever. It sounds Obviously, very similar to uh, doctors, um, land surveyors, that was what I was in. So I, I just, yeah, we are pretty unregulated here in Alberta. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so, you know, as, as you hinted at, this certainly gives rise to at least the prospect for various abuses of authority, um, abuses of power, especially so within such, you know, a powerful um, group of people, you know, in the province. Um, they really are the top dog, you know, for anything involving the law, uh, and they certainly like to, you know, flaunt that power. Um, so in any events, you know, we had to make this disclosure to them. I had to provide sensitive medical documentation, um, substantiating my medical condition. I was really feeling unwell. Uh, and to be honest, since 2013, I, I've never really been the same um, in terms of, you know, what I feel on a day-to-day -day basis medically. And that's something I'll touch on in a little more depth uh, in a little bit. Um, but having to provide that level of sensitive medical disclosure, you know, to, to the law society really made me feel uncomfortable. Um, so within, you know, two to three months of my 12 month articles with this big law firm, um, you know, I found myself struggling, you know, working the 80 hours per week that was expected of me. Um, as an articling student, sort of a rite of passage, you know, you're expected to be on call 24 seven. You know, we would be getting emails at 10 o'clock at night asking for immediate assistance. Um, and I just was incapable of putting in that, that level, you know, of, of effort, um, given my medical uh, condition at the time. Um, I really still was feeling extremely fatigued. I had serious migraines. My executive functioning wasn't what it was. Um, you know, so I started to push back on some of these requests from these senior partners. Um, and ultimately, you know, two to three months into my articles, I was taken aside by what they call the student committee, which is really just a group of senior partners from a law firm. And they basically told me, you know, hey, look, Steve, the partners don't like you. You know, you're not working as much as we expected you to. We don't think you're a good investment. Um, you know, they started to state that I had some sort of attitudinal problem because I was, uh, I guess, rejecting these absurd requests to be working all hours of the night. You know, notwithstanding, you know, this, this medical condition that they were very well aware of. Um, so I knew right then and there, you know, there was some discrimination happening. It really, you know, it was, it was a false uh, front for them to state that, you know, I wasn't likable, I had attitude problems. It was really, you know, as they suggested, um, the fact that they didn't think I was a good investment because I couldn't work these 80 hours per week. And at that stage of your legal career, you know, they're looking at you really as a dollar sign and, you know, how much money can you bring in for the law firm? They're not looking, you know, at you as, you know, someone who's a strong advocate, who can, you know, provide good services for clients. It really comes down to dollars and cents. So, you know, obviously I was dealing with a lot. My having heard this, you know, really, really worsened my pre-existing depression stemming from the concussions. Uh, at that time, I, I had been diagnosed with post-concussion syndrome. 
It's causing a whole host of problems, not only in my professional life, but my social life. Um, really didn't have a whole lot left in the tank. You know, I was contemplating suicide. Uh, my legal career that I had invested 10 years of my life in and getting two degrees, graduating at the top of my class, just like that was, uh, you know, basically thrown to the side. Um, so from that point onward, you know, they had threatened me with termination of my articles. Um, you know, I know they had spoken to the Law Society about potentially terminating my articles. You know, I think quite honestly, they were advised not to take that position because it certainly would have given rise, you know, to a potential human rights complaint. Um, they ended up just basically sticking me in an office, basically across the street from their main office, all by myself for the balance of, you know, the last six months of my 12 month articles completely cut off, completely alienated. Um, you know, they were circulating disparaging emails between and among each other with, you know, rude memes attached to them saying, Deganzik's a drunk, you know, this guy's crazy. Um, it wasn't until some, some time later that a senior associate at the time pulled me aside in the elevator one day and just basically said, you know, hey, look, I just wanted to let you know some senior people within this firm are poking fun at you here's a copy of the email that's circulating behind your back. And, you know, it was just entirely deflating. You know, these are lawyers. These are people I trusted, um, people that were at that time responsible for my legal training and giving me work. Um, I just felt completely deflated um, and it had a huge toll on me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, obviously that exacerbated my depression and my anxiety. I was left to myself some small little office you know, with no one else around um, I started drinking um, more more heavily um, so it just caused you know so many wide-ranging symptoms and I just thought to myself you know these are lawyers how how can this be happening um, but you know at the end of the day that was sort of the first glimpse I had of you know the the inherent corruption within the legal profession and they had attempted to cover, you know, their their tracks by making disclosure to the law society, by indicating that, you know, I I had a poor attitude and, you know, I wasn't pulling my weight, um, just you know, I guess to short circuit any attempt I could subsequently make about human rights violations. So, you know, at that time, based on how I was feeling, Michelle, I, I really didn't want to continue that fight any further. But you know, it mm -hmm. certainly left a really bad taste in my mouth. Mm -hmm. um, so fast forward to August of 2014, um, this firm let me finish my articles there, even though I was completely secluded and alienated. Um, I was called to the bar uh, as a barrister and solicitor um, upon the conclusion of my articles in August of 2014. And at that time, um, since the firm had told me I wasn't welcome back because they didn't like me, uh, as we know, because I wasn't generating enough revenue, um, I took a, a lateral position uh, and moved uh, to a large energy services company, um, uh, what we call an in-house legal position. Um, and that provided me with much more work-life balance as I was still continuing to rehab from this 2013 concussion. Um, so, you know, that certainly had a profound effect on my overall well-being. I was feeling better. You know, I had good, good supportive colleagues at the time. Unfortunately, uh, having only been a lawyer for two months at that point in time, uh, in November of 2014, I was involved in a really serious car accident. Um, my vehicle was a total write-off. It, it occurred at about seven o'clock at night. I was really fatigued. 
based on how I was feeling. And it was pretty high impact collision. Uh, and again, got another really bad head injury. And that's really when, you know, the rampant discrimination took hold. Um, so I was expected to be back at work within a couple of days. I told my employer I was in this car accident. You know, here's the evidence. Uh, just as I was starting to feel better, I got another head injury. Um, again, there was really no accommodation. They really didn't care. You know, I was just expected to be back at work, you know, forthwith to use their language. Um, so, you know, I tried that. I, I tried getting back to the office, ended up talking to my doctor and, you know, he said, absolutely not. Like you sustained a serious head injury, given your history, you know, you're going to have to take a short-term leave of absence. Um, so I acted on, on that advice for my physician. Uh, I took short-term disability, um, obviously have to make further disclosure to the law society again, putting them on notice that unfortunately I have this, this head injury on the advice of my doctors. I have to, again, you know, take a leave. Um, so over the, the, the course of the next four to five months or so, uh, into 2015, um, I, I did take that, that leave of absence. I participated, uh, in an occupational rehabilitation program, um, for people who had sustained concussions, uh, just designed to get me back to work especially, you know, in, in a demanding legal environment like I was working in. Um, so, you know, they, my employer at the time had a duty to accommodate that, you know, they did um, sort of under protest. Um, they certainly didn't like it. It wasn't long uh, before I started receiving emails again, you know, basically demanding me to come back to work after what was then three and a half months. Um, you know, my doctors still at the time were saying, no, you know, you're not ready. Um, you know, we have to sufficiently make sure you're, you're rehabbed and, and feeling better. You know, this is, this is a brain injury. You could have potential long-term consequences. So, you know, having made that disclosure, you know, from my doctors to my employer, we sort of reached a deal in April. I'd start half days, sort of a graduated return. Um, again, they really didn't like it. Um, I was receiving comments from my immediate superiors, like, didn't you just receive a bump on the head? Oh, I've had concussions too. You know, you're just fine. Don't worry about it. Uh, and it wasn't long, you know, before they started questioning my aptitude. They said, you know, holy, you know, did this brain injury render you stupid? Like, like, what are you doing, Stephen? Um, so I was really starting to feel, you know, the rampant escalation uh, in this discrimination and um, spoke to human resources. And again, you know, as I'm sure, you know, they just represent the company. They're really, they have no vested interest in really protecting, you know, their employees, as is often the case. And they just really took, you know, these people's positions and said, unfortunately, you're expected to abide by these directions and, you know, we'll document your concerns, but really nothing came of it. So this was April 2015. Uh, once my graduated return to work had concluded um, by the end of August, so I was basically working half days. Um, over the course of the next three months uh, after April, 2015. And these people were even making snide remarks like, oh yeah, Steve, you know, you must be really enjoying these half days, you know, go home and take, take a nap and make sure you enjoy it. You know, they, they really weren't recognizing that a, you know, a concussion and post-concussion syndrome was a valid or legitimate medical condition. Yeah. Uh, it, it really serves to illustrate the level of ignorance um, that there is out there. Yeah. Um, so once this graduated return to work had concluded by the end of August, I was immediately terminated. Um, 
they basically stated that, oh, you know, the economy's struggling. You're the newest to the group. You made the most sense to let go. Yeah. Um, we all knew it was directly attributable, you know, to the fact that I had just taken a short-term disability. You know, again, like my former law firm, they viewed me as a liability. I wouldn't be able to put in, you know, the level of hours that they expected. Um, so again, you know, I was cast aside by my profession. Um, really, you know, no one even wanted to hear me out um, or, or listen to my story. So this was a clear human rights violation. You know, the second, quite literally, the second this short-term disability terminated, boom, terminated. Um, ultimately, I spoke to an employment law firm um, here in Calgary, and they confirmed my situation. And they said, yeah, this is, this is discrimination. This is a potential human rights violation. You know, let's, let's commence an action. Um, you know, they left me without any severance. I had no insurance, no ability to pay any of, you know, my pretty costly prescription drug costs. Um, so without disclosing any of the terms of settlement, we ultimately did settle um, that, that case against my former employer. And just serving to illustrate, you know, how closely connected Calgary's legal profession is, the lawyer that was acting for my employer that had terminated me was one of the lawyers I worked for during my articles with the large national law firm. And I said, guys, like, this is, this is clearly a conflict of interest here. You have all this sensitive, confidential information about me that you're now presumably sharing with my new employer in defending this claim. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, it was ridiculous. And I mean, sure enough, they attempted to drag things out for as long as they could. I think I ended up with about a $15,000 legal bill uh, just for that, um, you know, over the course of three months without any income whatsoever. You know, I was really contemplating, you know, taking my life at that time. Um, it was just not a good time in my life. But, you know, ultimately, we did settle that claim. And, you know, I got, I got some, some enhanced severance to provide for a bit of a cushion uh, just to get me through for the next couple of months. But here I was, I mean, at the time, I was a 28-year-old new lawyer. Um, you know, I graduated top of my class. I was well-liked by everybody. You know, tons of positive references from law school faculty, many of which are now judges and justices. Uh, and because I sustained this injury, I was, you know, basically just entirely cast aside and no one really cared. You know, I was just another young lawyer that could be stepped all over without regard for my long-term well-being. Um, so it, it was just not a good time. I was contemplating, you know, taking some pretty serious action. Um, suicide, I was contemplating exiting the legal profession entirely. Yeah. You know, I'd heard from many people growing up that it was toxic. And, you know, Steve, you know, you don't want to dabble, you know, in, in the law world, it's, it's going to bring you down. Um, but the employment law firm at that time that had uh, represented me and successfully settled that case, they were at that time an Edmonton-based law firm and they were looking at branching into the Calgary market. So this is where things get even more complex. They said, Steve, you know, you're a young lawyer, graduated top of your class. We like your enthusiasm and your knowledge of employment law. We want you to come work for us and be our first Calgary-based associate. This was right after they had represented me in this, in this wrongful dismissal human rights violation case. They knew I wasn't feeling well. You know, they knew I had an ongoing medical condition um, that was still presenting serious issues. In any event, you know, they, they wanted me to come work for them. You know, they made it look uh, quite attractive. They said, you know, we'll give you quite a bit of money. Um, 
We're going to give you short-term disability coverage in case this happens again. Other benefits so you never have to worry about, you know, if your post-concussion syndrome again becomes an issue, we'll take care of you. Um, so I said, great, you know, that's let's pursue this. I really did, you know, have a, a large interest in employment law. Yeah. As someone who's always been justice oriented, um, I've always detested bullies. I've always detested people who take advantage of marginalized, very vulnerable people. So being an employee focused employment lawyer gave me the ability, you know, to use my skill set uh, and really help people in need. Um, but, you know, this was a law firm who, like any other law firm, imposed ridiculous fees. And it wasn't, you know, long before I started to realize after a couple of months working with them that, you know, they were purporting to help people and represent employees. But time and time again, you know, I was forced to turn people away simply because they couldn't afford paying a retainer. Um, and I was voicing these frustrations to the owners of this firm. And they said, you know, unfortunately, Steve, if these people can't pay our, our exorbitant retainer fees, then you have to tell them we can't help. And that really affected me because, you know, these people were really down and out. These were employees who had lost their jobs, had been discriminated against, who were coming to me for advice and looking at me as someone who could really help. And, and they have nothing. They, they have, have nothing. nothing. Absolutely nothing, you know, and they're defaulting on their mortgages. They have young kids to provide for, you know, oftentimes, you know, these were marginalized people yeah. um, uh, from, from various ethnic backgrounds, including new immigrants. Um, they had no understanding really of, you know, engaging with a lawyer. They, they were really overwhelmed. And to have to tell these people that I couldn't help them because my, my bosses told me we have to impose this ridiculous retainer fee really started to rub me the wrong way. And I found it inherently contradictory to, you know, what these guys were putting out there in the market as being, uh, employee focused lawyers. Um, so I started to voice these frustrations, Michelle, and, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, I was their most senior Calgary associate and I worked there for almost two years. Um, but having again been required to work these ridiculous hours without regard to how I was feeling, my health again started, you know, to, to run right into the ground. You know, I was burned out, my medical condition, uh, what my doctors were then referring to as post-concussion syndrome was rendering me, you know, extremely fatigued, um, really susceptible to just generally feeling unwell at the best of times. Um, but again, like my two other former legal employers, these employment lawyers, and that's the irony here, these were employment lawyers, um, employee-focused lawyers who were blatantly disregarding my concerns about you know, the hours I was working, you know, what they were expecting of me. Um, it, it just really rubbed me the wrong way, that, that flagrant irony that was just oozing from this law firm. Um, so ultimately, my health started to take a, you know, a, a beating again. Um, I started drinking more and more, um, people, you know, with repeated head injuries, uh, and depression and anxiety, you know, we are more likely to develop various substance abuse issues. Um, so after almost killing myself on December 16th, uh, or sorry, December 31st, 2016, um, I checked myself in to, uh, a residential inpatient treatment center in BC. Mm. Um, so it was, uh, from January until March of 2017. Mm -hmm. So again, I had to take a leave of absence to go and attend this, uh, this, this inpatient treatment. Um, my employer didn't like that. You know, again, I'd have to take a leave of absence. They had refused uh, to make good on their contractual commitment to provide short-term disability. So I'd have to take this on an unpaid basis. 
Um, again, you know, I felt completely disregarded. These were employment lawyers who, in writing and time and time again verbally after that, had made promises to me, being intimately familiar with my medical condition, having all, already represented me. They made these representations that they were now saying they weren't going to honor. You know, they said, see, if, if you want to go and get help for yourself, good, go do that. But, you know, we're not going to give you any disability coverage. So, I mean, in any event, I went and I did what was best for me at that time. And, you know, I went and got help and I'm now over four years sober and I'm very happy I did that. Um, but, you know, I, I came back to work uh, that following April of 2017 mm -hmm. and they had purported to have made a bunch of changes to my employment contract when I was away. They were reducing my compensation. Um, they were increasing the amount of billables that they were expecting me to produce for them, um, the owners of the firm, and they had done all of this while I was away and without my consent. So, you know, like any employee would, whether you're a lawyer or any other kind of employee, I took exceptions. To that. You know, firstly, they made these changes, you know, when I wasn't even present at work, I was away you know, um, at a substance abuse treatment facility. And I came back, you know, not knowing any of this had taken place. Um, and I just felt, you know, really disrespected, oh, discriminated yeah. against, you know, they were unwilling to listen, um, all of which just really made my newfound sobriety that much more difficult, you know, to adhere to, um, having just, you know, only been sober for a couple of months at that point in time. And again, I was, I was thrown right into the fire, I was expected to immediately start producing thousands upon thousands of revenue. Um, and all while, you know, my compensation had been significantly reduced yeah. and I still had no benefits. Um, so by this time, again, I was feeling, you know, really, really unwell. Um, very blessed to have had a good doctor who suspected something might be wrong um, with my pituitary gland. Um, oh, so what oh. we now know, is people who have sustained serious head injuries, um, especially over the course of many years, um, in certain circumstances, because your, your brain has been so badly battered and tossed around, it can um, injure your pituitary gland and cause it to stop working. And your pituitary gland is sort of a master hormone producing gland that's responsible for so much. Um, if it's not working, um, you know, this is gonna have catastrophic effects uh, on, on your ability to live on a daily basis, you know, mm. things that are basically responsible for, for basic bodily function. So I was feeling really unwell. I was diagnosed with this pituitary injury. You know, they prescribed me a new medication uh, that I'd have to start taking by way of injection every day. Um, again, I, I, I told my employers, you know, my physicians, while I start this new treatment, are recommending I take some time off. Um, just to get well again. And they said, okay, go and do that. You know, we're not going to honor our, our promise to provide any disability coverage. Not only that, these are employment lawyers and they were willfully withholding my statutory entitlements, including vacation pay and holiday pay. So they weren't even complying with the statutory minimums that all employees in Alberta are entitled to under the Employment Standards Code. They were willfully breaching that and saying, you're not getting any of that. Um, so I had no, no ability to provide for, for myself, no benefits. You know, this medication was like $400 a month. Again, I was tossed aside by these folks. Um, and again, the irony that employment lawyers wouldn't even comply with statutory minimums um, set out in the Employment Standards Code that every employee in the province is entitled to. Yep. So 
again, you know, I, I, I took the position that, you know, I'm done with law. These guys are toxic. You know, I want nothing to do with the legal profession anymore. And the travesty is, you know, I was a young lawyer at that time who had developed a really good reputation for helping people. Um, you know, I was sort of regarded as the people's lawyer. You know, I don't look like your typical lawyer. You know, I have earrings, I have tattoos. You know, I'm, I'm relatable. Um, people are inherently intimidated by lawyers. I wasn't one of those guys in a pinstripe suit, you know, working up in his ivory tower. Um, I'm able to get down on people's level and speak to them like human beings, mm-hmm. unlike most lawyers. So the travesty is, you know, because of this ongoing discrimination and conduct I was facing from my peers in the legal profession, I've had enough. Um, so I basically resigned my position, said, you know what, this is a constructive dismissal. I'm done. Uh, I'm going to go, you know, take care of myself and rehab um, and, you know, think of something else down the road once I feel better. I ended up speaking to a former law school professor who's actually now a justice at the, um, the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. And at that time, she was an employment lawyer. And she said, you know, this isn't right. We got to do something. Um, so I can't disclose any of the confidential details, but we ended up, you know, basically getting what I was entitled to under the Employment Standards Code. It took about eight months to get that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And these were statutory entitlements that I was already entitled to. Yeah. But I, they made me retain an employment lawyer to get what I was already legally entitled to by way of legislation. And it was all designed to pressure me, um, you know, basically cause me to go away uh, and just give up this good fight. Yep. So fortunately, I spoke to this employment lawyer, um, very well respected. Again, she's now a justice. And she said, you know, we, we have to end this. We have to do something. And because of that, after about eight months and almost $20,000 in legal fees, I finally did get what was owing to me. But after setting off against what I had to pay in legal fees, I basically walked away with nothing. Yeah. Um, so this was really, you know, the first taste of what was to come with respect to the law society in particular. Um, you know, I said, this, this isn't right. How can lawyers, you know, purporting to specialize in employment law, willfully breach the minimum employment laws in place in Alberta and get away with it? Yeah. Um, so I ended up making a law society complaint. Um, so just getting back to what I previously said about the old boys at the law society, you know, most of the people that run the law society have been there for decades. You know, they're mostly Anglo-Saxon, old, crusty QCs who are just a QC as Queen's Council, which is a designation handed out to lawyers who are very politically connected. And the vast majority of these folks are, again, these white, old, crusty Anglo-Saxon QCs who have had this position of power and privilege for decades. They really don't care about new lawyers, younger lawyers, um, you know, anyone that's been discriminated against, you know, potentially that may involve one of their pals. Um, So in any event, I thought it was an appropriate case to voice my frustrations to our regulator. And they're supposed to act in the public interest. They're supposed to act uh, in all lawyer members' best interests uh, and, you know, set aside any bias that they might have. We all know, you know, lawyers are inherently self-serving. You know, they look out for their pals, especially when there are no checks and balances in place. And by virtue of them being self-governing, there really is no independent oversight of what the Law Society of Alberta does on a day-to-day basis. It's secret, non-transparent, there's no public disclosure, there's no one holding them accountable. So I filed this complaint against these employment lawyers for violating my basic statutory entitlements. 
Um, this was in December of 2017. Uh, the Law Society knew, you know, I was on a medical leave. I had to file this disclosure with them yeah. as my practice then became inactive. They knew I was unwell. They knew my, my legal rights, statutory rights, had been trampled on by these two bullies. Yeah. Um, and they disregarded my complaint entirely. Within three months, they basically summarily dismissed this complaint, stated that we see nothing wrong with this conduct and your complaint is now dismissed. Good luck, Mr. Deganzik, you're on your own. Um, these were senior lawyers and senior employment lawyers who were not only violating my basic statutory employment rights, but violating the statutory employment rights and entitlements of all of their employees. Uh, and they were getting away with it with not even a slap on the wrist by the Law Society of Alberta. Um, so I felt really discouraged at that point, Michelle. Oh, I bet. I, I took the step of voicing my concerns. I really needed to be heard. They knew, you know, I have this ongoing medical condition. They knew I had been completely disregarded by you know, my then employer. And they didn't even care so much as to investigate it or look into it, they just summarily dismissed it. Um, these two owners of my former firm, politically connected guys, they're, they're pals with you know, many on the inside with the Law Society. Uh, as has now been made more clear, when a connected lawyer, member of the Law Society, basically taps their pal on the shoulder at the Law Society and you know, says, help me make this go away, that's oftentimes what happens. And there's never any recourse, whether it's another lawyer that made the complaint or a member of the public. Um, so many members of the public um, have put forward these complaints in good faith, stating that whatever lawyer they had retained, you know, mistreated them. Um, and the Law Society, time and time again, there's a very well-documented record of this. They completely disregard these concerns and they summarily dismiss them. Or, you know, even in the cases of very egregious wrongdoing by some of these lawyers, these lawyers get away with a slap on the wrist to the detriment of, you know, the public who has voiced these concerns in good faith. And, you know, it's been ongoing for years. So, you know, self-governance, the way this law society is structured has been a topic of discussion among lawyers for a long time. You know, a lot of us have been calling for reform. You know, it's fundamentally inconsistent with acting in the public interest as they are required to do. But these are very powerful people and they've lobbied government um, against making changes to the enabling statute, um, the Legal Profession Act, they've lobbied government against making any changes for reform because- I got a story to, to tell you. Please remind me to tell you the story of me trying to put forward a policy on this, but you go ahead. Sure, absolutely. I can't, can't wait to hear that. So um, people have been basically advocating for change, all of which has just been disregarded by government for decades upon decades because you know the old boys, and I call them the old boys because you know they're, old, politically connected, QC, Anglo-Saxon, you know, buddies that have run the show for decades. Yep. And they've, <laughs> they've, they've lobbied against these changes. And, um, you know, ultimately, every other key sector, we've started to see, you know, some, some steps being taken to ensure more accountability, more independent oversight. You know, we've seen this in law enforcement. Um, more and more, it's still obviously a lot of work that needs to be done, but they're moving in the right direction now since the public is now demanding accountability. Mm -hmm. But the old boys at the Law Society have consistently refused, you know, to take any meaningful steps. And I say meaningful steps because, you know, from a public relations perspective, yeah, they will go and say they're an inclusive employer. They recognize, you know, the human rights of their members and 
uh, you know, obviously the public, but you know, when it comes down to it, it's, it's all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all just public relations. Um, all of these steps that they've purported to take in, in terms of appointing an equity ombudsperson, you know, to investigate lawyer misconduct, you know, confidentially, it's all just smoke and mirrors. Um, you know, we, we all know it. I heard from my clients time and time again that they had been mistreated brazenly so by many lawyers. Um, and these concerns are just consistently disregarded by, by the old boys at the Law Society. Um, and this was really the first taste of it that I had personally mm -hmm. when I filed this complaint and to see that it was completely dismissed without so much as any investigation only three months later really rubbed me the wrong way. You know, and at that point in time, Michelle, you know, I'd been listening to my now wife and a lot of friends and even members of the public that were contacting me saying, you know, Steve, don't give up on law. You're a great lawyer. We need more lawyers like you. Um, you know, I, I, I basically had a change in position in 20, uh, 2018 now it would have been. Um, I said, no, you know, I'm a good employment lawyer. I think I have a lot to contribute to society. And, you know, I want to affect change within this archaic old profession. Um, that's exactly what I did. Um, so I had voiced my concerns to the Law Society. I said, I fundamentally disagree, you know, with you dismissing this complaint against uh, my former employer. These mm -hmm. guys committed an egregious, very egregious wrong, and they should be held accountable. In any event, I was all disregarded. I said, basically, pardon my language, I said, to hell with it. I'm going to start my own practice. I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to listen to what the public is demanding, and I'm going to provide that to them, mm -hmm. you know. What's, what's been the legal profession for decades isn't working. I want to satisfy that public need. Uh, so I created my firm, um, which was an employee-focused law firm. We didn't act for management. We only act for, for the people. Um, and I went by the name of YYC Employment Law Group. So part of my concerns, among many things, with the legal profession was access to justice. I got really sick and tired of having the term people away time and time again because they couldn't pay this exorbitant retainer fee. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to make my high quality legal services accessible to people who couldn't otherwise afford a, 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 any retainer uh, to get an employment lawyer. So I reduced cost by about 30 to 35% relative to everybody else. And I proceeded on a flat fee basis rather than the traditional uh, hourly rate, which is so inequitable. Um, and I'll touch on that a little bit further down the road, sure. but so inequitable. I wanted to do away with that. I wanted to promote transparency, certainty, and predictability, uh, and make legal services available to people who needed them, mm -hmm. who otherwise, you know, wouldn't have a lawyer to to represent them. So, fast forward a couple of months into uh, June of 2018, um, as I had ruffled some feathers with the old boys at the Law Society, in stating I had fundamentally disagreed with their approach to dismissing my complaint, I started to face a lot of pushback in the, the administrative approval process mm. to get my own law firm up and running. Um, so 10 months of unpaid medical leave later, I defaulted on almost every loan that I had um, because I had no income for that 10 month period. I'm still dealing with civil litigation from banks that are suing me um, for among other things, defaulting on my student loan debt. None of this would have occurred had my former employer actually honored its, uh, its, its legal entitlements um, and provided what was owing to me. Um, but in any event, you know, I started to default. I said, I, I have to start working again. 
started to feel a bit better on this new medication. Um, immediately in June of 2018, when I tried to you know, get the administrative approval process up and running, I was facing pushback from the Law Society. They were basically requesting a whole host of medical documentation stating that uh, you know, I was fit to resume practice. Um, they wanted to know the particulars of what it was that I was feeling, you know, why I had to take a medical leave in the first place. And then they wanted um, you know, my physician's input as to you know, whether or not they thought I was fit to practice. And I provided all of that under protest, yeah. but I thought it was completely inappropriate for my regulator to be questioning, number one, the legitimacy of my medical condition, but secondly, requesting sensitive doc documentation from my team of doctors about how you know, this was going to impact me down the road. So I started to feel again, you know, as an employment lawyer, you know, obviously something struck me as uh, you know, not being right, but I nevertheless complied. I provided this information in good faith. You know, I just really wanted to get this practice up and running and give back to the community and do something differently. So it took them about two, two and a half months to finally get this process underway and approved. Um, so they were dragging their feet the entire time. They were disregarding my request for status updates, you name it. Yep. So August, 2018, I still hadn't received my approval. Um, they subjected me to what's called a practice assessment where you know, I met with one of the lawyers from the Law Society uh, who wanted to assess my capability to run a Illegal practice, you know, they, they knew I'd graduated top of my class. They knew, you know, obviously I'd never had any disciplinary issues. I was well reviewed by the public, but nevertheless, you know, it was basically um, an assessment about my capabilities to be a lawyer and run a practice because I have post concussion syndrome. You know, they were asking me about depression and anxiety, um, you know, whether or not I had the capacity to even be a lawyer. Um, I felt really intimidated, really bullied. You know, this woman was extremely aggressive. She was rude. She was arrogant. Mm. Uh, she basically disregarded the letters I had from my physicians uh, and left me again with, with a really strange feeling. You know, I knew I was being scrutinized you know, much more than, than the average lawyer, particularly so, I believe, because I voiced my concerns to them uh, in April of that year with respect to that complaint being dismissed. Yeah. So now they knew I had a medical condition. And I mean, that was the beginning of what's really happened over the last two years. Um, it, it, it wasn't a valid practice assessment. They were really, it was a fishing expedition designed to get sensitive medical information about me and basically harass and intimidate me. So this was September of 2018. Um, after you know, I met with this rude and aggressive lawyer at the Law Society, I finally got my approval. Um, took substantially longer than it otherwise would have. I had friends at that time uh, who were similarly opening up their own legal practices. They faced none of this. Um, so it was something exclusive to me. Um, but in any event, I got this approval almost immediately, Michelle. I mean, you know, my practice took off. Mm -hmm. I was helping people in a way that no other law firm uh, had been doing. Historically, the employee side of Calgary's legal market had been controlled by two dominant firms one of which was my former employer. Um, they didn't like that I was shaking things up. And in particular, they didn't like that I was undercutting their margins, their profit margins, by making my services more accessible at a lower rate. Yep. Um, this was clear um, in, in many different uh, fashions. 
more and more employees were talking about me in YYC Employment Law Group. I'd built up a, a really active social media presence. Um, and I just couldn't keep up with surging demand at that point. Um, I, I thought to myself, wow, I, I could have never envisioned such a, such a fast takeoff. And it was really you know, due to the fact that I was helping people and listening to them, uh, doing something that you know, traditional lawyers just were not doing up in their ivory towers. Um, so people felt really good because they could finally afford a lawyer who was actually invested in them and was actually going to you know, help get them what, what they were entitled to. And I was getting fantastic results. All of that started to come to a screeching halt you know, only a month and a half later in October of 2010. Um, a couple of my competitors had sent me letter correspondence, one of which was my former employer, basically stating that um, you know, I was violating the Law Society's code of conduct by you know, marketing my services in the way that I was. They didn't care that I was doing a good job in helping people. To them, the fact that I was undercutting their business by actually you know, resonating with the public and doing a good job um, to them violated the code of conduct. Um, one guy was exceptionally rude and he threatened me um, with a complaint to the Law Society if I didn't immediately uh, change my marketing content, uh, as he called it. So, you know, I told him that, you know, this is clear intimidation. I don't care if you're a senior lawyer, that doesn't give you the right to target me uh, and, and threaten me with this intimidating language. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I took it upon myself and in hindsight, I may not have done it this exact same way, but I thought this is egregious. This is a guy who really doesn't care about helping the public. You know, he was very, very well reviewed online with negative comments from former clients, really didn't care about people at all, um, especially, you know, more marginalized groups. So I said, I'm not going to let this guy get away with this. And I posted his threatening letter to my YYC Employment Law Group Instagram account um, for all of a day or so. Um, and then I took it down. I just, I, I wanted people to see the level of toxicity and bullying and intimidation inherent in the legal profession that I was now being subjected to for at that point over a year. Yep. Um, and I said, this just isn't right. And I mean, we all know bullies don't like to be exposed. Nope. Uh, so, <laughs> so when I posted that letter on my business Instagram account, yep. I took it down after about 24 hours just because I was afraid of potential pushback from this guy, but it was up there for about 24 hours. Yeah. Um, about a week later, week and a half later, I got three emails from the Law Society of Alberta um, attaching what were complaints from this lawyer, my former uh, uh, employment law firm, and another guy. All three of them were competitors of mine, and they were all alleging that what I was doing was in contravention of the Law Society's code of conduct about marketing. These were all sent to me, literally three of them, within 45 minutes of one another. So it was staged to you know, completely overwhelm me. The Law Society knew I was susceptible to being overwhelmed, having just returned from medical leave. They didn't care, that was their intent. So I got these complaints. I said, okay, I'm going to fulsomely defend against these bogus and threatening intimidation uh, and, and allegations. And I filed comprehensive responses. And I said, hey, look, I'm not doing anything different than what these guys have been doing unchecked for 20 years or more. They're just simply upset that, you know, this young, forward-thinking, progressive employment lawyer who's actually helping people is doing a good job and they want to shut it down. You know, these guys were getting close to retirement, Michelle. 
They were probably worried about the effects of, you know, my forward thinking practice on their bottom line. So they colluded and conspired with one another. You know, their complaints were substantially the same. Um, and they filed these complaints in unison. Um, within a week of receiving these, I filed my comprehensive defenses. I set out, you know, all of, all of the substantiating evidence showing that what they were saying was bogus, it was false. And in any event, even if it was true, they've been doing the same thing for, for decades. So, you know, I, I put a lot of time into defending myself. Um, over the course of the next two years, it took the Law Society two years to actually finally attempt to move these forward. Um, I was contacting them once a month saying, you know, hey, look, these are hanging over my head. This is, you know, worsening my health. We need to move these forward. Um, you know, two years is an exceptional period of time. Um, you know, this was affecting my livelihood. The Law Society, based on these complaints, had subjected me to another practice assessment, just basically designed to intimidate me and bully me. Um, they started to say I had started to receive multiple awards. Um, I had won the 2020 Consumer Choice Award for, you know, Best Calgary Employment Lawyer. I'd won another one from Three Best Rated. These were awards that other lawyers in other practice segments commonly featured, you know, on their websites and in their marketing communications. The Law Society now started to say that by my communicating, uh, receiving these awards from independent third parties recognizing my service, that I was again breaching the code of conduct. And I said, how can that be so? Here's 20 different examples of other lawyers um, in Calgary and throughout Alberta using the same award seal on their website. How can you subject me to this double standard and say what they're doing is okay, but I'm somehow breaching the code? They said, oh, Mr. Deganzik, we're not going to address these concerns. We're only concerned with your conduct, nobody else's conduct. And I said, wait one second here. Here's a bencher of the law society. So benchers are elected by other members of the profession. They're lawyers um, basically sitting as directors of the law society. So they basically oversee the function of the law society. Here's a bencher from the law society publicly endorsing another lawyer's communication of the same award you're now saying, you know, that my use uh, is improper. How on one hand can a bencher who sits on the conduct committee publicly endorse this lawyer's communication of that award? And on the other hand, say that I'm breaching the code of conduct um, simply because I'm, I'm disclosing, you know, the recognition I've received for providing a valuable service. They said, again, Mr. Deganzik, we're not going to, you know, address these concerns. We're only concerned with you. Um, we take exception to your conduct. Um, in any event, you know, it was just such a flagrant, brazen double standard. All of the evidence I provided, Michelle, was swept under the rug. It was completely ignored and dismissed. They came at me, you know, I had a target on my back. They wanted to get rid of me because I'm vocal. And, you know, I called them out, you know, for their misgivings and wrongdoings. And that, that scared them. Yeah. They were afraid that I was fundamentally shaking up the market. Um, you know, they wanted to put an end to it. They knew I had done nothing sufficiently wrong so as to disbar me, you know, something that is reserved for, you know, serious wrongdoing, very egregious wrongdoing. I'd done nothing wrong. You know, I was providing a very valuable public service. The public really was receptive to what I was doing. And that, that scared the old boys at the Law Society. 
So knowing they couldn't disbar me, they kept these bogus complaints over in my head for over two years. You know, they were contacting me on a monthly basis, asking for my bank account information. Um, you know, I complied time and time again. Obviously, I had nothing to hide. You know, I'm an honest and ethical lawyer. Time and time again, you know, it was proven that there was nothing suspicious. Um, I was doing nothing wrong. But nevertheless, they continued doing this month after month after month for two years. By this time, um, it's, it's really quite a complicated story. But so these original complaints were still hanging over my head. Sure. Uh, I, I had hired uh, uh, another senior lawyer to help me with my practice um, in 2019. Um, this guy, I subsequently determined, you know, he's got sort of a reputation for being um, a little questionable in character. I didn't know that at the time. I subsequently discovered that he lied on his resume. And this is an employment. Oh, no. He had lied on his resume. He hadn't practiced for about 10 years at that time. Um, and he didn't disclose any of this until I subsequently found out about it. Oh. Um, things started to get a little weird with this individual. Sure. Um, and it wasn't until after that I learned he was working with this woman from a law society that it all started to make sense. So because, you know, obviously I had done nothing wrong to even remotely warrant any discipline or sanction, let alone disbarment, this group of people from the law society formed this personal vendetta against me, which included among other things, working with this lawyer that I had hired to essentially bring down my practice. Um, you know, they, they wanted to essentially bankrupt me so that I would be precluded from operating a legal practice as a lawyer because under our, our legal profession act lawyers can't uh, have been rendered bankrupt and still maintain a practice so this guy was was you know not providing service to my clients I was getting complaints uh, about people he was sitting on files not billing them so as to basically artificially impact our revenue so that I wouldn't be able to pay my bills I started getting emails from him, copying this one woman from the law society. I thought, why is she being copied on this email? You know, this is not her role. She's a practice advisor. This is ridiculous. Um, upon talking to my own lawyer at a well-respected national law firm, he said, you got to terminate him. You know, he committed fraud, you know, in lying on his resume. Um, there's something going on here. Just, just get rid of him. So I drafted up a termination letter, basically setting this out on the advice of my lawyer saying, you know, you lied on your resume. This is really serious. When I handed him his termination letter, he refused to leave. He got on the phone with this woman from the law society. And, you know, after an hour of trying to get this former employee to leave, I said, you know, this is really concerning. I'm going to have to start recording this. Um, he phoned this woman from the law society who got on the phone, completely overstepped, you know, the scope of her role as a practice advisor, told me that, you know, I had no ability to do this to this individual, um, just, you know, yelling and shouting and you know, very accusatory, um, basically indicating, you know, I was mistreating him because I had you know, terminated him. This was a civil issue that the law society had no jurisdiction, in, but they had completely overstepped their boundaries. And this woman had fully intervened for an improper purpose. So I had to record, you know, this, this phone conversation. And this was the same woman that he had been emailing for about three weeks prior to this, which was really suspicious. Um, so they ended up fabricating, and he admits to doing this with this woman from the Law Society, 
they fabricated a complaint against me that basically was 100% bogus, um, indicated that you know I was a bad person, I was mistreating him and other staff members. It was literally a 600 page complaint um, of you know smoke and mirrors, manufactured allegations, um, everything from misusing trust funds to providing bad legal advice, you name it, it was all in there. And he admits that this woman assisted him in drafting this complaint. So not, not only did I have these original three bogus complaints from my competitors outstanding, the Law Society had now filed its own complaint alleging that my use of my awards and my marketing um, was a violation of the code. And then I now had this other complaint that was completely manufactured with Law Society assistance. So I was on the verge of a breakdown. You know, I was, I was basically, they were succeeding in their efforts to take me down. Sure. Um, I felt I had no recourse. It was the legal profession rearing its ugly head at a young guy, you know, who was doing well, you know, helping people and they wanted to get rid of them. And, you know, they were succeeding in that. Um, I ended up having to get my own lawyer, paying him $30,000 um, just to get these files moving. You know, at all times he was telling me that, you know, these complaints were, you know, false, they were manufactured, they were bogus. Um, to use his language, the law society was out of control. Um, and I had, pay, I had to pay him $30,000, Michelle, just to, you know, finally after two years and all of the adverse health implications associated with this, just to move these forward and finally work towards getting them dismissed. It wasn't until, um, and at this sort of high level, I'm, I'm sort of, I guess, omitting some other details just because it is uh, a long, complex story. But fast forward, you know, about another six months, these complaints finally get dismissed after $30,000, two years of having to deal with this, basically the collapse of my practice. Um, and I'm told by a venture from the Law Society that because of my medical condition, um, the only reason that they are agreeing to dismiss these bogus complaints is because I was then in discussions to sell my practice. Well, what I subsequently learned was that this woman from the Law Society um, had worked towards intimidating this prospective purchaser of my practice, who's a, a forward-thinking, great employment lawyer as well, who really wanted to you know, fulfill my legacy and con continuing on with helping um, these employees and acquire my practice. They had intimidated him into not buying my practice. Um, so I had basically no option at that point, but to, you know, resign, say law society, I've had enough. You've now expressly, you know, stated that because of my medical condition, you want me gone. Uh, and, you know, I have this recording as well. I felt it was, it was appropriate in the circumstances to take that added measure of recording this, yep. um, just based on the circumstances and everything that had happened. You know, so that I could, you know, protect myself and show people what exactly is happening here. Yeah. You know, they ruined my reputation, Michelle. They had thrown me under the bus, yeah. bankrupted me, and now they've caused this other lawyer, um, who's a great, you know, employment lawyer as well, to back out of his potential, you know, purchase of, of my practice. So, you know, I'm now bankrupt. I've basically had my practice taken from me by these people. You know, it was quite literally a select handful of three to four people over there who had formed this personal vendetta. Um, one of which now, believe it or not, is now a human rights commissioner 
who was working for me at the time. Um, she, <laughs> it's just, there's so much conflict here. And so, you know, my Oh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know, the Human Rights Commission, I could have a whole episode on that. Let me tell you, I'm... <laughs> It's, it's I don't really know if there's anything really to protect the people at this point. I, I don't believe that, you know, once they've decided that they don't want you around, yeah. you're, you're gone. And, and it's that simple. And, you know, you can get land defender status from the UN or whatever, but nobody's going to investigate. Nobody cares. Yeah. Well, the opposite, actually, they, they know and they cover it up yeah. and that's what they do. And that's like, you talked about it, uh, the lawyers being politically, um, connected I, mm -hmm. I know exactly who you're talking about yep and i i'm you know and i'm not surprised I'm not shocked and i am um, i put forward a policy at one point in time wanting reform justice reform and um it was the actual gatekeepers that you're referring to that stopped it within the party mm -hmm. from going forward because they're all lawyers they know right. it's a problem they won't put forward their own policies to fix it you know they they know so they know yep you know, it, you're just hitting the gatekeeper after the gatekeeper and they're gatekeepers in multiple professions in order for us to never progress and to never succeed and to yeah. keep people down. Yeah, oh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, these are gatekeepers, you know, and they're they're there to perform that function. Um, they are lawyers. They're in the back pocket of, you know, their cronies at the Law Society. Yeah. Um, you know, I've reached out to our current UCP government, um, you know, in terms of advising them of my request for change. I've got a petition, a petition circulating right now that has over 700 signatures. I've spoken to other lawyers who, because of me coming forward with this story, they're now in the process of, you know, wanting to come forward with their story. Um, you know, there's going to, going to be a lot of attention being paid to this, but those in government with the UCP right now, you know, they're lawyers. I mean, we, I specifically referred to Doug Schweitzer, um, Shandro. These were Calgary-based lawyers who are buddy-buddy uh, with the folks at the Law Society. So, you know, I'm not surprised, you know, my concerns have been completely ignored and yeah. I fully expect them to until, you know, things move forward and, and more public, you know, demand is, is there. But we're at over 700 signatures right now in this petition that I have circulating. More and more lawyers standing up. Um, you know, I've spoken to a few who have some pretty serious allegations against the Law Society. Um, not just, you know, on the medical side uh, of discrimination on the basis of disability, but flagrant racism mm -hmm. um, targeted at, you know, minorities within the law society that have been completely mistreated. Um, you know, I've got some really shocking client stories about being mistreated by the law society when they brought forward their own complaints wow. surrounding serious lawyer misconduct. Um, you know, there's there's a lot that's starting to ooze out of the woodwork now, you know, because I've taken the step of coming forward. And I mean, there is a culture of intimidation, um, right? I mean, lawyers have been consistently intimidated into keeping quiet whenever these situations arise. And it's, it's, people are scared of the law society, just like they are of the police. You know, this is their livelihood riding on the line. And unfortunately, because of that culture of shock and intimidation, not enough people speak out um within the legal profession and you know i'm not intimidated you know i am a vocal guy um i call a spade a spade and you know they even ostracized me michelle for telling a qc that i didn't care that he was a qc because what he was doing was fundamentally wrong and yeah. it didn't give him the right to abuse people in that way
But according to the folks at the Law Society, because I told him I didn't care that he was a QC, I'm somehow being uncivil. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Um, indigenous women, especially, I was having a conversation with a friend and, you know, she talked about how at the university level, talking to a prof, like as if they're, you know, an equal to her. And, um, and that, that's just an indigenous way is to talk to people as if they're equals. And that's the problem with these structures is that they have um, built in their head that they are not equals, that they are above everybody. And of course, that's why they're arrogant and egotistical and become gatekeepers. And so it, it goes in complete contradiction to indigenous ways. That's for certain, you know, yeah. and, and, and I think most people like they we've been taught to fear these institutions. And, um, and I'm sad to say I've made peace with the fact that I'll probably die if not at the you know, bottom of a police boot, it'll be in a jail, you know, or because at the end of the day, these folks, they don't like people speaking out. They don't like you no. planting seeds of hope, of no. truth, of justice. They don't like that. And uh, to this day, we, we've had a multi-million dollar lawsuit um, from the residential school survivors. And, you know, despite having a commission report with thousands of, of pages and, and volumes, we have still people in denial of the gravity of this. In fact, somebody recently accused me of uh, being defamatory about talking about genocide against Indigenous people. Like these people have no concept of how they're constantly, when you, when you say old white um, or uh, old boys club, yes. like to me, Canada is a construct of white supremacy and patriarchy. And, and this like legal profession helps to, mm. you know, continue Actually, that. Yeah, it does. It yeah. certainly perpetuates that. And it's been that way since Confederation. Yeah. Um, you know, and we see that today, even in 2021. Yeah. Um, you know, they can they can put a minority on their board of directors. But at the end of the day, that's smoke and mirrors because nothing they, they really have no clout. And it's it, that individual is consistently disregarded by these old boys who have all the power there. And yeah. you're right. It perpetuates this ongoing re-victimization. Re that's that's been that way ever since Confederation. Yeah. Um, it's speaking of police, um, the Law Society, believe it or not, their investigations team is substantially comprised of ex-Calgary police members um, who now work for the Law Society, and they do not hesitate to use that improper influence. Yeah. Um, with their pals over at the CPS. So even when a lawyer comes forward with evidence. Um, of serious criminal wrongdoing as against another lawyer. If that other lawyer is connected to these old boys on the inside, these investigators, and I won't name them by name right now, but there are a few of them, these investigators who work for the CPS, and I know this for a fact, do not hesitate to get on the phone and call up their, their pals at the Calgary Police Service and say, make this go away. Yeah. Um, and that's just fundamentally unacceptable and inappropriate. And, you know, I've, I've aired these frustrations to the Law Society. You know, they're, they're doing many of these, these things actively within my ongoing matter with them. Willingly and, participating. Yeah, they are absolutely problematic. Yeah. And, you know, and, and <laughs> that, that's the irony. You want our children, you want us to believe in the system. How can we possibly believe in the system when you've consistently proven that you are incapable of trusting? Absolutely. And, I mean, it's why... Public trust and confidence, especially among marginalized groups, is, is non-existent within the legal profession right now. And I mean, these, these folks are statutorily mandated to act in the public interest. And do they not see a problem if the public does not trust them? 
especially those, you know, within marginalized communities. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. And by reason of me coming forward, you know, I now have some legitimate fears about my safety. Um, quite recently, actually, I just subsequently determined, um, I had submitted a FOIP request to the Calgary police service and I got some disclosure back that indicated this same woman I'm, I'm mentioning from the law society, uh, in concert with someone, someone I used to work with, um, in September of 2020, uh, advised the Calgary police that when I showed up to my office that I am on the lease for to retrieve my mail, I was committing an act of burglary and get this, this is, this is where it's actually really ridiculous. They phoned the Calgary police advised that an act of burglary was happening and the Hawks helicopter and canine unit was mobilized to my office simply because, and as they knew I was retrieving mail on an office that I am on the lease for, that I have every legal right to be present at, they nevertheless told the Calgary police that I had no color of right to be there. And that's quoting directly from the disclosure package. And it wasn't until after the Hawks helicopter and canine unit were deployed to my office in an effort to apprehend me that the Calgary police actually determined in their discussion with the landlord that I did have every legal right to be there. So. The Law Society um, expressly advised the police um, on false pretenses that I had no legal right to be there, knowing that that would result in what would have been a rather aggressive apprehension and detainment of me um, at a time when my wife and I were quite literally having a child. And in that disclosure package, Michelle, and this is, this is where you know, the, the flagrant mistreatment by the folks at the Law Society really comes to light, and I've now realized it personally. They referred to me in their discussions with the Calgary police as a suspicious looking tattooed Croatian man. Oh. That is quoting verbatim from this police report that the Law Society uh, assisted with. <laughs> so not only now are they, are they saying that I'm mentally unstable and unfit to practice because I've called them out, uh, they're now making disparaging comments about my own race and ethnicity. Um, it, it, it just really serves to illustrate the level of corruption that they'll stoop to in. Okay, know. but can we just, can we just like, just take that moment for a second and say this? Holy, like we talk about Karen calling on a black man. Mm -hmm. Wanna talk about the most extreme example of them. I, I honestly believe that's almost an attempted murder. Like in my opinion, that's an attempted murder because they already know you have a pre-existing head injury. Mm -hmm. Like if there was ever an example of the most extreme Karen moment, it is this one. Agreed. I couldn't believe it when I read that. Wow. Uh, they know I have a head injury. You know, if, if I had been aggressively detained by a canine unit, um, who knows what would have happened. Furthermore, as is often the case, my, my wife who was then nine months pregnant could have been there with me. Oh my God. And my toddler son, they often would come with me to pick up mail. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. We gave oh birth October 8th. This occurred September 20th. Um, we were within that two week time frame of having a child and you know, who knows what could have resulted. And that, but uh, that's what they wanted. That's the irony. They know what would, what would have happened had that one cop, like, you know, you talk about a freaking miracle that one cop decided to call it off in the yeah, time. That's right. Like, 
and 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 worse your child your child would have been apprehended and the one she was about to give birth to would have been taken like if she survived if they survived because they kill kids they don't care if they're in the middle of those situation they have full disclosure and discretion clearly they have the law society on their side to help them through these legal court cases like if there was ever a case to never ever ever trust these people again i hope to god my listeners know it's this one yeah it's it's really triggered my ptsd um you know and it's i'm by no means the only one that's that's gone through this and you know whether systemically or otherwise i'm not trying to play the victim card here at all but no time it's 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 really had a profound effect on on me um I mean, it's really triggered me, like since finding this out over the past, you know, short while. And, you know, I followed up with the officers who were assigned to investigate this with CPS. Haven't heard back from anybody. Um, you know, I think now they probably realize what they've done and um, now they're just hoping that it goes away. And um, I, I, I can't even get a phone call back from these guys just to get an explanation as to what happened here. I knew about none of this, but it seemed like I was within minutes of being violently apprehended and detained. Um, oh yeah. Because, because of the law society's misrepresentation. If not killed, like they know they're putting your life at risk. Yeah. Like, even if you were to survive it, they know they're trying to kill you because they already know you have that pre-existing um, condition. Yeah. Absolutely. It was at a minimum an attempted assault. And, you know, as, as we know from law school, you don't get credit for swinging and missing. Nope. Um, this, this was a clear attempt that Fortunately, it was unsuccessful, but no one's no one's holding themselves accountable here. And you know, I've I've filed a human rights complaint. You know, I've sent further letter correspondence to the Human Rights Commission, um, just advising that you know, obviously, there are some serious and fundamental potential conflicts of interest here. You know, the Law Society has control and jurisdiction over all of the staff lawyers with the Human Rights Commission and the tribunal members. They're all regulated by the Law Society, so. You know, I'm aware of this potential conflict and, you know, perception of bias. Uh, hopefully they do something about it, but I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, just given, you know, the extent to which they're willing to go to bury this, throw, you know, me and my family under the bus. Well, they're, they're putting you in danger. Well, 100%, I would not trust the system in any capacity. I mean, I mean, I wouldn't be, oh, I won't even say it out loud. I don't want to implant the idea. But anyway, I just, I, yeah, and it, I, I don't know if you have recourse in a Canadian legal, um, like federal jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And even like, I would tell you to get UN status at this point, but I, I just don't even, I don't have, I don't even have faith in the UN, frankly, because they've never, you know, had any meaningful sanction against Canada in any capacity for their blatant genocide or for their mm -hmm. misuse of Western law. You know, obviously they're just all in bed together anyway. So it, it's just, it's yeah. so depressing. I mean, I, how can you be a centrist in this, in this, um, you know, in these systems that are designed to hurt anybody that yeah. they, they deem hurtable and, you know, as indigenous women, we're going murdered and missing because we have the audacity to, you know, stand up for our inherent uh, legal rights, our inherent land rights, our, our inherent human rights. Um, yeah. So obviously we're first on the list to, to kill and to go missing. So, um, yeah. you know, I just, oh, the system is so gross. It's, it's so I, I think you're really brave to share everything that you've shared because um, it, they are bullying and intimidating us in order to shut us up. 
and that's why it's so important to speak out so that somebody somewhere knows this is happening. Well, last summer, when I was about to go public with CBC, uh, Colleen Underwood, who is a great journalist at CBC, um, she had put a lot of time and effort into investigating this. After multiple months of fact-checking, conducting her investigation, she was all ready to take the story public. Wow. She couldn't believe what was happening. We were like half a day away from publishing the story. Right before I was set to go public, Michelle, the Law Society contacted CBC, threatened legal action if the story went public. So I got an email from Colleen. Keep in mind, this was after months of investigating and multiple interviews at my house. Colleen said, I'm so sorry to tell you, you know, it's now taken out of my hands. We're not going to be able to go public with this. Um, strategic litigation against public participation, slack. In many jurisdictions, that conduct is illegal. But the Law Society believes they're above the law and they can intimidate journalists. And so... But they are above the law. That's the whole thing. They are the law. So they're like, you know, we, we were taught as kids to respect the law. But when you become an adult, I, I just don't even understand how you possibly can. I don't I know. know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been rather, rather tragic, you know, and, and devastating. And I wanted to share the story and let people know that, you know... I haven't given up on helping people. I, I still get emails every day from, you know, people asking if I'm able to help them in their ongoing dispute with their employer. And yeah. I just want the public to know that, you know, my heart is still with them. And I, I wish I could continue to help. My hands are tied right now due to, you know, some rogue individual uh, at, at the Law Society. Um, and, you know, by virtue of going public, I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, we can perhaps generate some traction and finally, you know, hold these quite frankly, thugs uh, to account. And, you know, I say thugs because these people are, are thugs. They're, they have no regard for, you know, the, the impact on, on others associated with their conduct. Um, and they have really, unlimited public funds yes, in order to go after you, me, anybody. Like the, that's the whole th irony of all of this, right? Is that they, right. they and, and so it is really hard not to call them anything but thugs. Because yeah. they get away with anything they want. They can beat us, murder us, you know, yeah. and, and they have all the legal rights to cover up their misdeeds, all of them. And they, and they do. And we have reports, like, for decades to prove it all, all across the board, all across the nation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it, it, it's just so disappointing because these gatekeepers are so aware yeah. and they still do nothing. No, I know. Time and time again. Yeah. And, uh, you know, perhaps my next calling in life is to just become, you know, a human rights advocate and you know whether it's law or otherwise but you know i'm i'm outspoken and i'm not going to be intimidated and i'm i'm going to fight for what's right um and i'm going to continue to help people in some way shape or form and yeah. they can't they can't stop that um you know they've, they've tried by taking away my legal practice and um but they can never fully shut me up you know i'm going to continue to call them out um if that subjects me to, to further harm um i'm i'm prepared to take it you know to that length hopefully that doesn't happen mm -hmm. but you know, they've, they've got a demonstrated propensity for completely abusing the system so yep. um you know hopefully by way of you know making things public um that doesn't happen and you know we can finally start to affect some change here you know well and, and i hope somebody like vice or some other groups like obviously the cbc is a public um, company and and of course so then they have public funds that are pretty much unlimited as well and their lawyers will have unlimited funds and 
you know, but maybe um, something else like Al Jazeera, um, mm. you know, there's a million other medias outside of Canada. And I'm yeah. sad that you have to go outside of Canada in order to get coverage. But that's the reality. That's the world that is the irony of the stupid Western construct that they've put together. Yeah. They control everything. So anyway, really? yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for letting me share my story. It's It's been great uh, just to kind of get it off my chest and get it out there. Yeah, well, I'm really honored that you would share your story with us. I'm really proud to uh, to be, you know, putting that story out there because it just goes along with all of the other injustices that we regularly talk about on this show, like our last one. You know, there was a, a, a police officer's wife up in uh, Nunavut that put out the most disparaging comments about Indigenous people, and there was there will never be recourse against that cop or his wife. Like this is just so normalized that yeah. you know constant bullying, uh, discrimination against the people, um, and and you know and I've talked about my Austrian family, and they've just have that despite what being white, they are yeah. still discriminated against. And you know Ed Stelmack, he was discriminated against. There's there's so many examples of where if you're not the right kind of white, we will still come after you because yeah. we, we uphold white supremacy. We uphold patriarchy. So you have to be in a very specific demographic in order for you to be accepted in this world. And it, it's so incredible to me that in 2021, you know, we, we can't get justice. We can't get lawyers. We can't get any positive change. And we talk about defunding the police. I mean, there's that whole bigger concept here of how can you even possibly talk about justice when it's completely unattainable for the average person. And I know they do a great, like you were saying, PR, they have great PR about, you know, oh, you know, the human rights is putting together yeah. a committee to talk about disability in the province, blah, 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 blah. With the end of the day, I know so many people who, like yourself, uh, present as able-bodied, but are not and, yeah. do you know, need support. And not in this province. In this province, it's it's almost like they they encourage the fentanyl so that people like yourself will die. Yes. And that at is like the fundamental problem. You know, we have a disproportionate amount of uh, indigenous women, indigenous black people in jails. Yeah. That is a reflection of them, mm -hmm. and they just refuse to. Well, no, they know. They know. That's why we have, you know, people like Robert Pickton who can get away with what they're doing for so long because they were all embedded. And that was a report that showed in BC. So it's not like just an Alberta problem. It's a yeah. national problem that they all know that they won't do anything about. So the rest of us just have to try to figure yeah. out how to survive this world. And luckily, because I'm just an Indigenous woman, they won't listen to my podcast. But maybe like I, obviously other Canadians and folks who really care about um you know, human rights, discrimination, yeah. and equality, they, they listen. And, yeah. and thank you listeners for being those people. So <laughs> tell the <Absolutely>. story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, let's just continue to, to vocalize our concerns and speak out against this, you know, manifest injustice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really, you know, I think all, all we can continue to do at this point is just continue to talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Generate this this public demand and exposure, and hopefully, eventually, our government will will listen. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know we'll it's see. easier said than done. Yeah, uh, they they've consistently shown that they won't. It doesn't matter who's in power. It it just yeah. won't matter. It's, it 
It's a right. white supremacist patriarchal society and they love it that way and they're going to continue to do it that way. And even if you're a woman, apparently you can use the worst amount of power in the worst way and to try to kill someone. And it, it's just so apparent and over, and I'm so done with it, but I'm grateful you came on my show to talk about your story. And, and it's not the end, like you're welcome back anytime. We can continue that conversation and hopefully we'll get some folks that'll be uh, really interested in hearing more from you and start following you. So, um, you know, any resources that you want to uh, put out there for people to follow you, I'd be, mm -hmm. you know, we'll put it out on the podcast, but you're welcome to it here as well. And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so my business Facebook page is at YYC Employment Law Group. Um, and you'll see I'm doing a lot of advocacy work on there right now with respect to the Law Society. Um, talking to a lot of members of the public who share similar concerns. Um, so I'd certainly encourage your audience to have a look. Um, you know, feel free to contribute your own personal stories of, you know, mistreatment uh, and discrimination by the Law Society. Uh, and let's just, yeah, keep this dialogue going. So at YYC Employment Law Group, we also have a petition going um, that is intended uh, to be drawn to the attention of our provincial government and hopefully affect change to the Legal Profession Act and to take away some of these powers uh, that the Law Society have been misusing. Yeah. So the link to that petition is http chng.it forward slash lowercase m, lowercase p, lowercase h, uppercase b, uppercase w, shb, um, s, uppercase h, lowercase b, sorry. And well, and I will also put that link right in our episode oh, awesome. as well, because yeah. uh, like I've shared it, I think I've even signed it already. I think but, you did, yeah. Yeah, but that bigger picture, um, you know, and I actually do have a lawyer for a motor vehicle accident, and they were talking about the changes the current government are making with uh, no fault collisions and such. So yes. they have some stuff going on there. Obviously, I'm supporting yeah. them too. So like, it, yeah. it's so hard because it's like finding these small pockets of lawyers trying to do actually good work. Well, that's you right. Know, yeah. yeah. And it's it's very hard because a lot of them don't want to speak out and come forward. And um, I have confidentially had discussions with a few people who are now looking at you know doing something similar. Um, so we're starting to see more people from behind the scenes, you know, take hold of this sentiment and actually want to affect change. I think we've all had enough. Mm -hmm. uh, the weaponization of, you know, the Law Society of Alberta has to stop um, this flagrant injustice being committed Know, on a daily basis against very vulnerable people yeah. um, has to come to an end and you know hopefully 2021 is finally a year that we can see some change oh let's hope so my god <laughs> <laughs> well i'm gonna do my exit and by the way don't hesitate to kind of interject because um sometimes i think when other people hear it in somebody else's words it makes more sense and i always do the same intro and exit because you know, the demographic of people that would be in your circle will be listening to the show maybe for the yeah. one and only time, right? Yeah. So that's that's why I repeat it a lot because I have some really cool guests and I'm so grateful you're one of them. So thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you. Really <laughs> appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm really proud of this podcast and that we give solutions, that we include cultural safety training, cultural first aid, uh, in a way to create a safer space for uh, new immigrants, Indigenous, second generation Canadians, people of color, those with disabilities, LGBTQ2+, all to speak. Uh, I want to say thank you to the authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fritkin. 
uh, for uh, here to help.bc.ca for Indigenous people, what is cultural safety and why I should care about it. I said it for over a hundred episodes, so the least you can do is look into the links at this point, and I will share those. Um, I continually to share them, their work and those cultural action tools that I've said in my podcast uh, support Indigenous work. So as part of your reconciliation work and settler understanding, um, you know, follow these folks. And I'm just lucky enough to repeat and highlight that here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of uh, violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. Uh, we have the Indian Act, Indian Residential School, the Law Society, all of these wonderful examples. Um, RacialEquityTools.org, What is Internalized Racism by Donna Bevins is a great resource if this is a newer concept to folks who are listening. Do's and Don'ts for Bystander Intervention by American Friends Service Committee. This link I've talked about what you do if you're on a sea train and you see a woman with a hijab or an Indigenous woman being targeted by uh, some racist jerk. Uh, how to intervene in a good way. And what's the number one thing? Don't call police without consent. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words, honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their platforms and policies. So here we are with our friend talking about how like literally these are part of the gatekeeping problems you know and i, I ran for um the alberta liberal party i ran uh, in the last government or the last election because i knew um kenny and his work federally that i've been fighting about for 10 years so mm -hmm. you know i just knew the dirty corruptness that they're all yeah. associated with and how they don't care about human rights the opposite they they purposely put forward policies they know are meant to continue yeah. to hurt and traumatize people so anyway if yeah, they don't recognize marginalized people in their budget and their policies a gender mm -hmm. equity plus program uh, policy they're cutting violence prevention program services indigenous education uterus health choices gay straight alliances lack of human rights for immigrants migrants folks with disabilities mm -hmm. know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to actions, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports on child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two Spirit. Denying all these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational justice and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. Really great article I said out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talked about and want to talk about um, and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It is toll free, open 24 hours a day, and you can also text at hopeforwellness.ca. And I bring this up again and again because this is cultural support with people who understand Indigenous people as opposed to the non-Indigenous supports, which I'm going to give. 
Um, if it's more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls in Two-Spirit, and obviously that a lot of the stuff that we talked about today, um, I could tell you hours of conversation of families that had nothing but awful experiences with police that had resulted because they lost a sister, an auntie, a mother, um, you know, a daughter. It's so infuriating. The answers have been there in front of them. They refuse to implement them, making them complicit with genocide. Anyway, <laughs> this is a yeah. national toll-free 24-7 crisis uh, line for folks experiencing that. It's 1-844-413-6649. Um, if you are non-Indigenous, there are uh, functioning 211s in your area. If not, you can do a 24-7 toll-free line at one 833 Four five six forty five sixty six, and you know what? Before I continue, I'm just going to say this to you too. Um, the uh, program that my husband and I are blessed to be with is is called White Bison Society, and that's all across Turtle Island or North America. And um, you know, so it talks about intergenerational trauma, talks about complex trauma, and I like colonialism because it's such a global issue. We all suffer from it. So I, I'm just going to throw it out there for everybody because it's really important to know there are mental health supports available. I, I will tell you, Canada will never fund them. Um, Alberta Health Services will never fund these things because one, they're not Christian based. So they go against their uh, genocide of, of everybody who's not, you know, white, male and Christian. But for the rest of us, there are resources available. So white bison society, if um, and and we accept non-indigenous people, obviously because we have to uh, recognize that the Canadian so-called mental health uh, ways don't necessarily work for everybody. And I want more tools in the toolbox as opposed to less. So that's that's where I come from when I say that. Uh, violence is my everyday reality. Um, I'm sad to say every indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started a podcast to speak freely without interruption without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. As many people don't wanna hear my opinion or his opinion or anybody else's opinion, but sure like to tell theirs, usually by people who know nothing about, you know, discrimination, indigenous people, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about the constant surveillance of indigenous people, our protests, our vigils and our rights, microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism. Then the people who are gatekeepers, we talked about that a lot today. Uh, folks who survive off the status quo and people who are so in their trauma that they stop people from doing the good work and depleting personal resources, which I always am suspicious of people in these high powers about like what unrecognized trauma that they have in their life that they, you know, just continually perpetuate on the rest of us. Anyway, that's yeah. another episode. <laughs> um, internal external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why I needed a podcast to be heard. Um, I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom, of what strength looks like through your example. I want to give a shout out to one of my aunties who's a lawyer. You know, she she is the reason why my mom had any rights to me, frankly. And that's another conversation for another day. Um, I've had aunties and uncles support me my entire life. I want to say thank you to my dad for being strong and teaching me to be strong and blunt my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. Through her, I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. Uh, thank you to my husband Darcy for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child, 
He has supported me down my journey of the red road. He has witnessed decades of sexism and racism into who are our child who we are blessed to learn from daily. I'm honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand down the road. As I would say to you and your family, I hope they are proud of you because I, I know that uh, these are hard, you know, roads and journeys for us to go down. So <clears throat> my Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and you can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. I now have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest uh, podcast and pin posts on social media. And I want to end with giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not your dish. And my beautiful cousin would respond or you'd be in my dish. Thank you for listening. <laughs>